0: 2023 was the year we celebrated 50 years of formal diplomatic relations with the government of the Chinese Communist Party, following then-opposition leader Gough Whitlam's dramatic outreach to people like Mao Zedong and Zhou Enlai. Then last month, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese was formally welcomed to Beijing by the new Chinese leadership after very strained times between our two countries. Yes, a lot has happened in between those landmarks. And one of the features of Saturday Extra over the years has been covering that vital relationship, often with Dr. Jeff Raby as our guest. He was an ambassador there until 2011 and uh, has also, uh, he now runs a Beijing based business advisory firm. I welcome him back. Hello there, Jeff.
1: Hi, Geraldine. Good to be back.
0: And Michael Shoebridge is with us too. He's a security analyst who is with ASPE in Canberra, but is now director of a new think tank, Strategic Analysis Australia. Hello, Michael.
2: Hey, Geraldine.
0: Now, look, I'd like to ask you both, really, I just want to hear your verdicts at the end of this year. Have we become better neighbours? Have we even advanced on the mateship ladder? I want to know, after some very difficult years. First to you, Jeff.
1: Uh, The references to China, I guess. Yes. Yeah, okay. No, well, look, I think uh, the relationship is uh, now back to what I describe as a normal relationship. Uh, I know a lot of people talk about uh, the role of uh, the Albanese government in stabilising the relationship, but uh, things have moved on. China now is a great power in the region. Great powers by their nature are assertive uh, and we have to learn to live with that great power. We're not going to go back to the effervescent sort of relationship we had in the past. And almost more
0: innocent, you think,
1: do you? Well, it was. A, they were more innocent times. But mind you, like when I was ambassador in 2009, we went through a very difficult period in the bilateral relationship. But we kept talking, we kept engaged, uh, and uh, we worked through that. Uh, I think the problem the last few years is engagement broke off. And uh, we can blame whoever we like for that, uh, but that is the reality. And now the Albanese government has got that engagement back on track. And I think it's a normal relationship for new times.
0: But I mean, compare it to what, yeah, the only other big power relationship he has is with the US. And I'm talking about sort of almost tone in this. It just won't ever be like that, won't it? It'll be a different type of relationship.
1: Oh, for sure. And and I think uh, people who have been involved in the relationship for a long time would never have expected that. I mean, we are countries with very different values, uh, very different ways of political and social organisation. And in fact, in the Howard days or in the Hawke days, uh, a lot was made of the fact that such different countries could actually work together on things that they shared in common. And I think we're pretty much back in that place. But there has been a difficult history now of the last few years, and that will shape and give a tone to the relationship and undermine trust on both sides.
0: Michael Shearbridge, how do you see it?
2: Oh, well, Geraldine, mateship is not a term I think we could use with any sense to it. I think the problem is our different interests are now much more jarring. And I really don't think this is so much about Australia-China bilateral relationships or who is in government and who did what uh, in the last period. I think it's much more about the kind of China that so many countries are now dealing with, a much more aggressive um, China that's much more comfortable using its power, and not just a normal old great power like we're hearing from Mr. Rabie, a, a party that is deeply a country that's deeply centred in a deep authoritarian organisation called the Chinese Communist Party. So I, I think any idea that we're now managing the relationship, uh, that's just not true. Unfortunately, the China challenge is a collective thing. And it's not really a bilateral thing.
0: So the trust for you can't, whatever was there, can't be easily restored between Australia and China. We've got to see ourselves as part of a broader, a broader collective, really.
2: Yes, and I don't think there's much trust uh, with Beijing in many capitals on the planet, across Europe, uh, in Tokyo, in Seoul, uh, in Manila, uh, and certainly in Washington. So well, why did Joe, uh, Joe Biden say to Anthony Albanese just before he went off to Beijing to have that historic reunite, reuniting after 50 years of, uh, when Goff turned up? Why did he say trust but verify? The verify bit means there's no trust.
0: Um, which country in your in your both your views benefited more from re-establishing the relationship? I, I think that's quite an interesting way of thinking about it, too, Jeff.
1: Uh, but, uh, in, in which
0: country? Well, did China want more? Which oh, uh, we, China, and Australia. Yeah. Oh, look.
1: Um, uh, look they both both Australia and China have interests in the relationship. Uh, any idea that people stay awake? at night in Zhongnanhai in Beijing, trying to think about how to peel Australia off the US alliance uh, is just nonsense. Um, The um, Chinese leadership fully understand that we are completely aligned with the United States on these big strategic issues, but um, we are also a major trading partner and they have major interests in our commodities and resources and also in the role we play in the region. Uh, and also as a as a voice back into Washington. So, for the Chinese, it's a much better situation, of course, to have a positive, constructive relationship with Australia. Do They, they do care about that, do they? Well, they've put a lot of effort into that. They wouldn't have been uh, doing what they've done for the past 18 months, trying to restore the relationship, uh, did, if they hadn't cared about it.
0: What do you think they make of this AUKUS development this week, of the um, vote going through the US Congress?
1: Well, look, I think they came to a view at AUKUS some time ago that it's not going to shift the needle on the strategic balance with the United States in the region one bit. Uh, And so it's just, uh, it it was uh, baked in. Uh, I think bigger concern for them would have been just the scale of the US defence spending, uh, which has gone up another major step. Uh, with the uh, Congress decision this week, of which AUKUS is only a small part.
0: Mm. And, and, Michael, wh- how do you think they'd, uh, uh, they'd react to or- the AUKUS development?
2: Well, Beijing doesn't like collective action that works against its interests. And so AUKUS is part of broader collective action to constrain China's aggressive military behaviour, and they are concerned about it, but they'll want to see it deliver additional military power before they get too worried.
0: Look, what about the internal state of China? Is it sliding towards deflation? Here we are worried about inflation, um, but there is a lot of people suggesting deflation is happening in China. Well, certainly the price of goods and services is actually the GDP deflator. Prices right across the economy is at 1.4%. Now, your training's in economics, uh, Jeff Raby. Um, is this something that is bothering them? Is, is re- taking a bit of the oxygen out of them?
1: Oh, most definitely. I think you've expressed it very well, taking the oxygen out. I don't think China's on the edge of an economic cliff. Um, And in fact, we've just seen yesterday, the industrial production numbers are up 7% year on year, 6.6 to be accurate. Um, They've got a lot of headwinds. Uh, Deflation is a manifestation of the shakeout that's going on in the property market. Um, uh, Unemployment seems to be high. Certainly youth unemployment's very high. Mm. Um, so there's a lot going on, but there's another side to this, which I wrote about after I'd been in Beijing during the summer. Uh, and I think there's a lot of industrial restructuring going on. And so it's not clear whether there's something of a pause. Uh, I don't think it's a secular decline as some people would argue, uh, and it may, uh, presage, a uh, return to a, a stronger growth path. But, you know, This year, 45% of all new car registrations were electric vehicles. The Europeans are beside themselves Mm. now with the extent to which China's penetrating the electric vehicle market in Europe. It goes on and on and on. A massive industrial restructuring. So I think we're at a transition point. I'm not sure where it all lands, but yes, uh, certainly the Beijing leadership will be mindful and concerned about the rate of economic growth.
0: See, what I would read was that actually they were notably not ready to start bailing people out because, you know, debt levels are huge in the property sector and local government. And they also don't appear to be overtly interested in boosting consumption or to start building really good public services like health, education and welfare.
2: Yes, Geraldine, I think there's something else going on here, which is that Xi Jinping values control and national security intervention over prosperity and growth for his population. And so he really has undercut some of China's most creative enterprises, its tech sector, for example. Uh, And he's caused a collapse in foreign direct investment into China. There's capital flight out of China. The two countries that seem not to be part of the de-risking agenda are Germany and Australia. So this is one of the oddities... Of, of our relationship with China, having been subject to very direct economic coercion uh, with the Prime Minister's visit, he talked up growing trade exposure again, which is something no other developed economy is doing.
0: Do you, uh, you would advise against that, would you, Michael? The notion of
2: Uh, Absolutely, because the other big policy, and Jeff knows about this, uh, is the policy of dual circulation, which is a big economic strategy to make China's economy less dependent on other economies, but other economies more dependent on China's and that's because they use trade as a weapon as we have experienced very directly
0: but we do get a be- a yield from this trade don't we i mean there's been enormous underpinning of our of our growth and you know the iron ore price just um, last week is another example so i mean we can't exactly turn our face against it can
2: we no we can't but we certainly can diversify our economy from our big single lazy bet on the China economy, and the reason that the iron ore trade has kept going is China currently has no alternatives. They're desperately trying to create alternatives, notably in Africa.
0: Yeah, and that that, that Belt and Road initiative is—it's it's ten years since the Belt and Road initiative as well, and it's quite interesting that that's a sort of been a mixed, it's been a bit of a mixed experience for China, wouldn't you say, Jeff Raby?
1: Yeah, look, I just um, Michael's covered about China desperately trying to create alternatives. Yes, that that's for sure, as Japan did, as Korea did, as any country does. They don't want to be heavily dependent on us diversifying our trade, sure. But for all the years I was in Dfat that's what we talked about. You, I, I, can't, ca- I can't count the number of Indian strategies we've had in the last 20 years. There's a certain economic fundamental about why we trade so heavily with China. It's called comparative advantage. And it's just profound in the China state as a situation, just like it was between Australia and Japan and Korea, but China's of a scale that vastly changes the game. So yes, keep trying to diversify, but there's a certain economic reality. And with iron ore, Rio Tinto, which nominally is an Australian company, and Fortescue Metals, which is definitely an Australian company, are going as hard as they can to expand iron ore production from Africa. On the BRI, um, it was its 10th anniversary this year, it's a mixed bag, always going to be. And as I said in my book in 2020, the BRI would always overpromise and underdeliver. And it's created pushback in certain areas. And also it's uh, uh, created... Italians have pulled this. out,
0: for instance. I mean, quite a few of the European yeah, countries. Yeah, for
1: sure. But many, many countries in the world are enthusiastic about it and, and want to be part of it. So look, the BRI-funded fast train in Indonesia has just mm. started running. It's a mixed bag. Is exactly the way to look at it. I think we've just become hysterical about some of these issues.
0: Have we become hysterical about Taiwan? I, I think both of you probably have very... Because that's the whole geo, bigger geostrategic story here, which I haven't gone to. Do you think so, Jeff Raby?
1: Uh, Well, I have said over and over again, I don't believe uh, China has a military option in Taiwan. If Beijing had a military option, they would have used it by now. Uh, That moment, I think, passed uh, at the time of the Korean War back in the 1950s. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, Beijing will do whatever it can to try and shift opinion in Taiwan and bring Taiwan back towards uh, itself. If If it could use a military option it would uh it's not being nice to taiwan out of the goodness of its heart i just don't think the reality that i just don't think that's a realistic option and i think uh, uh, putin's invasion of ukraine uh, would certainly drive that message home uh, amongst clear thinkers in beijing i think you'd think differently michael Shubridge.
2: well china doesn't currently have a military option to conquer the people of taiwan but it's working very hard to create one um, and there is no other explanation for the force structure they're building that's pointed directly at Taiwan. And she keeps talking about the military option uh, as one that he's keeping live, and that's very real to the people of Taiwan because they see the Chinese military firing live missiles and having mass exercises pointed at them. And, of course, as far as not being friends of Taiwan, well, um, Beijing killed any one country, two systems model that they might have been able to credibly offer the people of Taiwan when they seize control of Hong Kong and put that draconian national security law through. So there's no trust there either. And that's a key problem. Uh, you know, all this, they're just a great power finding their way. Well, I think the level of control and repression we're seeing in communist China now is way beyond that. And that's changing the economics and this idea of comparative advantage because the risk of trading with China is just growing day by day.
0: And we haven't had a chance to talk about the, his visit to Vietnam, I think, which was very interesting indeed this week, um, uh, Xi Jinping. Um, so, look, thank you both very much indeed, Michael Shoebridge, for being with us. I do appreciate your time.
2: Thanks, Geraldine. Good to talk with
0: you. And, uh, Jeff Raby, thank you for being a guest and charting this over many
1: years. Delighted to be here, and I wish you all the very best. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the
0: ABC Listen app.